Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, a Faribault man shares his personal story about why it's important to get screened for colon cancer early, the latest job numbers in Minnesota, and spring planting season. But first, Governor Tim Walz and legislative leaders got a deal on the state budget this week, but too late for lawmakers to wrap up the bills before Monday's midnight deadline. So a special session is necessary probably in mid-June. MNN's Bill Werner has details. Scott, the path toward a budget deal actually started clearing last week when Democrats in the House quietly dropped their backing of the governor's proposal for a fifth income tax bracket, which would have increased taxes on the wealthiest Minnesotans and large corporations. House Democratic Majority Leader Ryan Winkler told MNN, I don't think we need to do that. I think we can make our commitments on an ongoing basis to schools and health care without that fifth tier at this point in time. Long term, we will need it in order to make the budget balance. But for right now, federal funds will get us through. It was clear that political support for the governor's marquee initiative had eroded. And what remained was the question of how to use billions of dollars in one-time federal COVID relief dollars from the American Rescue Act and how much say the governor would have and the legislature would have in how that money would be spent. After a weekend of closed-door negotiations, an announcement late Monday morning. It's a good day, Minnesota. It proves once again that our democracy is strong that compromise is a virtue, not a vice, and that setting down and listening to one another and truly valuing a differences of opinion at the end of the day can bring you an agreement that strengthens everyone, that gives everyone an opportunity to succeed in the state. The governor, Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, and Democratic House Speaker Melissa Hortman agreed on about a billion dollars in tax relief, including to businesses who got loans under the Paycheck Protection Program and to workers who received COVID unemployment benefits. It was too late, however, to pass those particular tax breaks into law before Monday's tax filing deadline. The fact that we've all acknowledged it's full paycheck protection uh, and the COVID-UI benefits are not taxed as well, I think people can at least know where it's going. Said Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, House Speaker Melissa Hortman said she thinks the Revenue Department perhaps will be able to make changes so people do not have to refile their income taxes, but that's not yet certain. Anybody who's filing today can know that that's going to be deductible. The mechanics of whether they will have to refile a return or not is a question we can answer later. The governor and legislative leaders also agreed that he would have the discretion on spending half a billion dollars of the federal COVID relief money, while the remaining amount, about two and a half billion dollars, would require agreement with Republicans and Democrats in the legislature. Although there is a budget deal, details of the budget bills must still be worked out, and that is no small task. The goal is to try and get most of this wrapped up towards the end of May, give some time to write these things up and check that, and then when we come back in June to be able to wrap up this year's budget. That would probably happen around June 14th. It must happen by June 30th, the end of the fiscal year, or parts of state government would begin to shut down. What happens to the governor's COVID emergency powers is not resolved in the budget deal. Senate Majority Leader Gazelka says... We're still working on it. I think that that would be an accurate assessment. If we're coming back somewhere around June 14th, we got to figure that out. Republicans want the governor's emergency powers totally canceled. He responds, I know it's a, it is an irritating point for many folks, 
But the fact is, we're just managing basically the vaccination part now, and I think there's agreement that that will go forward. With a budget deal announced, but not nearly enough time to pass all the bills, lawmakers were ready to end the regular session well before the midnight deadline, but they needed to finish some other miscellaneous business first. For the people that are listening and want legalized marijuana, you're basically getting it right now through the back door. And I believe through the front door here pretty soon. Prinsburg Republican Tim Miller as the legislature approved the use of flour or bud in Minnesota's medical marijuana program. Backers responded could cut costs in half for patients. And Minneapolis Democrat Aisha Gomez stressed. This is not about legalization. This is about patients. This is about people who are suffering. This is about people who are in pain. But a later comment by House Majority Leader Ryan Winkler might well confirm the strategy that Republican Representative Miller warned of. It's a significant accomplishment in the movement not only towards legalization, but for patients to be able to access cannabis for health reasons. Shortly after approving Bud for the medical marijuana program. All those in favor, please say aye. aye. Those opposed, aye. please say Are you no. Kidding me? The motion prevails. The House stands adjourned. At about 2.20 p.m. on Monday, the Senate adjourned about two hours later, making this the first time in recent memory that the final gavel on a regular legislative session has come down well before midnight. Although lawmakers do have to come back next month for a special session, something that has become far from uncommon in recent years. Another significant item that remains in play for when lawmakers return to the Capitol, an off-year scaled-down bonding bill for state public works projects after legislative leaders agreed about $500 million will be available, a combination of state borrowing and federal COVID money. The mix of projects, though, still to be negotiated. And Senator Tom Bach, independent from Cook, says he wants it to focus real hard on asset preservation. Deferred maintenance on state infrastructure around the state, whether it's DNR buildings or wastewater, water infrastructure, maintenance at our state colleges and universities, University of Minnesota. Bach, who chairs the Senate Capital Investment Committee, says... Some people will be a little disappointed because I'm really not planning on putting local-type earmarked projects in. Urban lawmakers will likely push for money to help rebuild riot-torn areas in the Twin Cities. But Bach says Minneapolis and St. Paul have already received a lot of money from the federal government. Whether the legislature approves additional police reforms in next month's special session is also yet to be decided, as it was not part of the budget deal. House Speaker Democrat Melissa Hortman. I really believe there's a lot of common ground. I've been hearing about more places where we can agree than, than a list of items that we can't agree on. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka said there will be some police accountability measures coming out of the June special session. But he said civilian oversight boards or changes to officers' immunity from lawsuits will not be among those changes. Gazelka says about controversial measures in that and other areas. There's a lot of policy provisions that both sides are not going to agree on, and in the end, those we're going to be throwing those overboard. And lawmakers in the upcoming special session will also likely face pressure for gun control measures. Prompted by the shootings of three school-age children in Minneapolis over the space of just a few days, Governor Walls said this week discussion at the legislature should not only be about police reforms, but also about how many guns are on the streets. How do we end up in situations where somebody's in a drive-by shooting situation that, that a little girl ends up in critical condition at a birthday party? Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. 
Throughout the state, Minnesota Electric Co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and I'm proud to be a book person. How do I choose a book? Sometimes it's the cover, sometimes it's the title. I guess I'm pretty visual. If a book's really impressing me and the writing is really good, I will peek and see what the last paragraph is. Because the endings of books should rock you. I am a book person. And if you're a book person, too, read to a child and spark a lifetime of ambition. Join me at bookpeopleunite.org because reading is fundamental. A public service announcement brought to you by Reading is Fundamental, Library of Congress, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Recently, the United States Preventive Services Task Forces recommended making colorectal cancer screenings more common starting at age 45. It's a move that John Sarzoza Jr. of Fairbo strongly reports. Sarzoza was diagnosed with colon cancer four years ago at age 48. He says things likely would have been much different had he been screened earlier. Had I been screened uh, even just a few years earlier, uh, they would have caught it at least uh, at a lower stage than it was. But um, um, I was uh, I was diagnosed back in 2017 uh, with uh, stage 3C colorectal cancer. It was quite a large tumor that had wrapped itself around uh, my uh, rectal column and had punched a hole in the back of the colon. And... Um, you know, when I talked to my surgeon about it, you know, he said that the tumor was so large that, you know, I probably had cancer for the last 10 years and didn't even know, you know, about it. And, um, you know, I, I did have uh, symptoms, you know, for a few years leading up to that diagnosis. And, um, uh, and of course, I was misdiagnosed, so, you know, I, I still didn't know. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, had I been screened at age 45, 46, 47, whatever, um we would have caught it way earlier. I would have been diagnosed at a much earlier stage um, and not had to have gone through what I had to go through, um, which was, you know, pretty horrific in itself as far as, you know, all of the uh, daily chemotherapy and radiation treatments uh, just to shrink the tumor up. And then uh, having to go through the, uh, the, the lower anterior resection surgery to take the tumor out. Um, and then I had to have a a bag for a year while I healed up um, and then go through all the cleanup chemotherapy, which um, did a lot of harm to me physically. Um, and then um, I thought I had uh, beaten it, but uh, it had a spread to my lungs, which I didn't, nobody knew about. And so just recently, um, about four or five weeks ago, I had my latest surgery to take out the tumor out of my lung and um, they couldn't get it uh, out and so they decided well we're just we'll just take the lung so they 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 took out uh, half of my left lung uh, rather than take out the tumor so um, so yeah everything that I have gone through in the last few years um, probably wouldn't have happened had I been screened even if, like I say, if even a few years earlier than than when I was diagnosed, you know, I was diagnosed at age 48. But you know, had I been diagnosed at age 45, I probably would have came in at a you know stage one maybe, um, and not had to have gone through all the 
all the horrific stuff I had to go through just to get to where I'm at today. And so I'm sure I'm not the only one out there um, who's had to have gone through what I've had to go through, gone through. Um, and so, yeah, anytime I hear that there's an effort out there to um, lower the screening age to an earlier age, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Um, especially if you have a family history of colon cancer, which I do have, um, uh, and especially if you have uh, symptoms leading up to it. So, you know, if you have blood in the stool or rectal bleeding or, you know, any kind of symptom that could be a red flag that somebody has colon cancer or colorectal cancer, um, like I say, I'm all, I'm all for early screening and early detection. Um, because I, I don't want to see um, people go through what I've had to go, go through. And especially for even the younger people out there in their 20s and 30s who are being diagnosed every single day with colon cancer um, for other reasons other than just, you know, family history. But um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just becoming more and more and more prevalent. And being that I, I think it's still the second most common um, cancer in, in the United States that people are dying from. So, um, yeah, anything I can do to help out, uh, to raise awareness, um, or even like, like you said, to lower the age, uh, screening age down to 45 or to 40 or to whatever, I'm all, I'm all for it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm definitely, definitely a fan. John, I'm so sorry to hear about what you went through because it sounds awful. And I, I was, I was going to ask because you did, you did mention a, a couple of the symptoms, but are there other symptoms that people should be watching for? I mean, everybody is different. Um, so yeah, the, the, the biggest one um, that I have heard about is, you know, rectal bleeding. So, you know, blood in the stool. You know, a lot of times people think um, like what I thought. You know, I thought, well, it's probably just a hemorrhoid or something. I'll just go into the ER or to urgent care and just get it checked out. And that's the first thing they tell you when you get in there. Oh, yeah, it's just you're too young for cancer. It's probably just a hemorrhoid. It's no big deal. People get hemorrhoids, you know, just deal with it. And they send you home, you know. And so I'm like, oh, okay, no, no big deal. And then, you know, a year later you find out, oh, my God, no, that was not a hemorrhoid. It was a huge tumor that had punched a hole through the colon, and that's what the bleeding is coming from. So that's the most common one that I've heard of as far as symptoms go. But there's so many other symptoms, you know, from cramping to, uh, you know, huge amounts of weight loss. I mean, I've, I've had just about every single one of the um the symptoms, you know, I lost well over a hundred pounds and, you know, I mean, I had just about every symptom there was and they still misdiagnosed it. Thank you very much to my guest, John Sarzoza Jr. I appreciate you sharing your story, John. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Minnesota continues 2021 job gains. Tasha Radel has more. Minnesota's unemployment rate ticked down to 4.1% in April from 4.2% in March. The unemployment rate decline was due to people moving from unemployment over to employment. The U.S. unemployment rate rose one-tenth to 6.1% in April. And for the fourth straight month, Minnesota gained jobs. 
Last month, the state gained 11,300 jobs, down from just over 20,000 in March, while the U.S. gained 266,000 jobs over the month in April. I asked Minnesota Jobs Commissioner Steve Grove if he's worried about the decline in job growth last month. Yeah, I think if it had happened, if we hadn't seen the U.S. numbers and we saw these numbers, we might have been a bit more surprised. But having seen the U.S. numbers, I think we anticipated that we would not see something you know, massively different here. We were encouraged that we did a little bit better than the rest of the country on job growth. But you know, as I said, it's a tricky time in our economy, and it's, it's not going to be a steady line, a steady you know, trajectory from the economy the pandemic gave us to the economy that will become our next chapter. What I can say is you, know, you deserve a Department of Employment and Economic Development that works day and night to make sure that that transition is as speedy and as helpful for both businesses and workers as it can be. And that's why we are really reshaping our, our efforts here. I talk about those outbound calls. We talk about our strategy consultants. We talk about our approach to UI. All these things are trying to meet the moment that we're in to help workers and, and help businesses. We certainly hope for higher job growth numbers every month, to be clear, and we want to see that number go higher every month and are working our darndest to, to make it so. Uh, but I think there's a the, it's hard to be patient when everybody wants so desperately for things to get back to normal, but there's a degree of this where you've got to take the long view and hope that you're setting up your economy's fundamentals in the right way such that growth is possible. And I think that kind of speaks to the process we're in right now with the state budget of making sure that we are making investments that prioritize those who are hardest hit by the economy, that makes investments in building a really fertile ground for small business growth, for startup growth. Those are the things that are going to help define this next chapter of our economy and grow the most jobs. So there's a lot to this. There's sort of the day-to-day decisions that we we make on our program implementation, but then there's also how we look down the the road in the future in terms of what we build for for the best uh, chance of success. Commissioner Grove, while Minnesota continues to see wages continue to slowly climb, some speculate the $300 additional federal weekly unemployment benefits that run through the end of August are discouraging folks from getting out and finding a job. I think it's important just to share here too that, you know, growth in wages is not a bad thing. Of all the open jobs we have in Minnesota right now, of all the job vacancies that we have, the average wage rate is about 80% of the median for the wage rate for the rest of the economy. So, you know, you can imagine if you're looking for a job and the jobs that are out there pay less than the average wage in the state, it, it makes it a harder, uh, you know, it, it makes the decision a little bit more tricky. And at the same time, to be clear, no one's getting rich off of unemployment insurance. It pays half your normal salary. And even with that $300 plus up, that's still not much. Uh, and we know that the folks that are more likely to be on unemployment insurance long term are the lowest of low wage workers. So we've seen that average benefit payment just at the state level go down over time because it's the lower wage workers who are in the system. So, you know, I think it's important to to consider that when you look at some of the dynamics that are playing out in our, in our state economy. Thanks again to Deed Commissioner Steve Grove. Now turning to the federal level. This week, Senator Tina Smith and Representative Angie Craig introduced the 21st Century Workforce Partnerships Act of 2021. Senator Smith, I understand this bill is designed to pair students and business leaders up to create relationships to help address the worker shortages that many companies continue to see. That's exactly right. Well, we came, Angie and I came to this legislation um, in a, through, on a couple ways. One is talking to so many businesses who were telling us about their struggles 
finding people with the skills and training to fill the jobs that they're creating, especially in advanced manufacturing and IT and healthcare. And a lot of these jobs don't require an expensive four-year degree, uh, but they do require specific training. And then on the other hand, we were talking to a lot of students who just didn't have any idea of what these opportunities were. So we went to work on this and we put together this legislation which would help local school districts and businesses create partnerships at the high school level and also uh, post-secondary and career and technical schools to join together to create opportunities for students to get exposure and training and even you know, paid internships and apprenticeships and these in-demand jobs where there's a real shortage of workers. And Senator, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing huge worker shortages in the manufacturing sector. And I think for many younger workers, there, I don't know, maybe a stigma around manufacturing in general. I know when I was a kid, manufacturing always reminded me of Laverne and Shirley. Now I'm really dating myself, I know. But I guess my point is that manufacturing has come a long way, much more advanced, and they're quite high-paying jobs. It's so true. I have been on the manu- on the floors of many Minnesota manufacturing businesses, and they are bright, clean, and very high-tech places where there's a lot of um, computer work. There's a lot of um, uh, tech tech know-how that you have to have in order to make those places run and make really interesting and important products. Yet I think there's this sort of outmoded idea, just as you say, Tasha, and kind of a stigma that is that sort of says, well, if you're not quite up to snuff and you can't go to a four-year college, then here's a path that you could take. And it's actually completely outmoded to think about it in that way. Those jobs are great jobs. They're great careers. Uh, they pay very well. And we need people in those jobs. And the best part of it, if that fits with what your interests and your skills are, is that you can move into that field without taking on all of the debt that is so often associated with a four-year degree. And that's where we need people right now for our economy to really, um, to, to really run. So it's, a, it's exciting to think about how to make these connections and um, how to help districts um, do this work. Thanks again to both of my guests, Senator Tina Smith and Minnesota Jobs Commissioner Steve Grove. And thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The spring planting season has been good so far for Minnesota farmers. 
The latest USDA crop report indicates 95 percent of the state's corn acres are planted and nearly 40 percent of the corn is already emerged. MNN Brownfield Ag correspondent Mark Dornkamp has an update on how spring planting went in Minnesota. He spoke with U of M Extension corn agronomist Jeff Coulter, who's optimistic about the corn crop. We were very fortunate that we had a lot of good working days in there during that period when uh, planting started so that it uh, could get done. One of the concerns sometimes in years like this is if we hold off, you know, waiting for the soil temp to warm up, and then what happens if we get rainfall and that pushes us out of the field. But fortunately this year it seemed to work out well, and uh, the fields that I have seen that were planted early, say around April 22nd or so, those fields, uh, the emergence in those fields looks quite good. Is that one of the concerns, though, when you plant into cooler soils is that you could see uneven emergence? Yeah, um, yeah, that's an issue. You know, this year we've had cold soils for uh, much of the spring here, um, and that's delayed emergence. And compared to last year, and last year our emergence is behind in Minnesota, but it should catch up here uh, later this week, I would think. The, another issue this year is that we had a lot of dry soils, um, and that those dry conditions, I think, can have a, a larger impact on uneven emergence than cool soils. So uh, that's a little bit of a concern, but fortunately, um, we were able to get rain in a lot of areas in the last few days, so that should really help things along. Are you aware of many farmers that decided to plant a little bit deeper because they were essentially looking for that moisture? Yeah, quite a few farmers were planting around two and a quarter to two and a half inches uh, to get it into moisture if they needed. You know, if we can get by with two inches, that's the way to go, I think. But uh, if there's not moisture there, then it's uh, not a bad idea to plant a little deeper to get into moisture. What do you recommend corn farmers be doing as they wrap up planting? I think a big thing here is to check your fields to see what your stands are like and just to see if any fields or parts of fields need replanting. And, you know, area fields that could be at risk for replanting may be fields that were planted before April 22nd just due to extended cold soil temperatures and fields that were planted uh, where the soil was dry, where the seed was placed or that dried out quickly after after planting. So, uh, you know, just keep an eye on those fields. Um, a lot of the corn now is starting to emerge, and by the end of the week, uh, we should really be seeing it. If we can uh, identify fields that need replanting sooner rather than later, that will uh, be very advantageous for us if we need to replant. Uh, you know, we haven't really had many growing degree days accumulated up to this point. So if we did need to replant and we were able to get it done by, you know, uh, mid next week, I don't think there would be a large loss in yield potential for that replanted crop. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. Anything else you want to make sure we talk about today? Well, I'm pretty optimistic for this growing season. You know, we've got our crop planted early, assuming that we get good stands and, uh, and that the rainfall continues to be timely. I think it could be a very excellent year. Uh, this rain that we've got recently, that's really going to help out with emergence. There is some concern about uh, soil moisture and if it's going to be adequate, particularly in, in some of the areas where... Uh, you know, it, it's been dry for a while and that subsoil is, is quite dry. You know, we're going to need timely rains in those areas to help carry our crop through. But uh, at this point, I'm, I'm very optimistic about this growing season. 
That's agronomist Jeff Coulter from the U of M and MNN Brownfield Ag correspondent Mark Dornkamp. That is going to do it for us for this week. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. <music>